0: Welcome to the Neurotic Nourishment Podcast, a podcast for smart moms.
1: I'm Dr. Lindsay Weisner. I'm a psychologist, a mom, an author, and an occasional shit show. I'm Sharon Sapir. I'm a mom with a master's in
0: nutrition from a fancy pants school, and I still want to eat my face off sometimes.
1: We want to make you think. We want to make you laugh. And we want to remind you that, hey, we all go through Shit. Dr. Tina Payne Bryson is a child and adolescent psychotherapist, the director of parenting for the Mindsight Institute, and a child development specialist at St. Mark's School in California. She is the co-author of so many books that you have absolutely heard of, and if you haven't read them, I guarantee you, eight people you know have already read them. Dr. Bryson is the co-author of The Whole Brain Child, No Drama Discipline, The Yes Brain, and most recently her book that comes out on January 7th, 2020, The Power of Showing Up. Spoiler alert, don't worry. It has nothing to do with how many PTA meetings you attend or how many times you volunteer to be class mom. Dr. Bryson became my white whale of a guest that I just had to have, not only because her loyal and scary and kind of intimidating PR person said, meh, to my first few pitches, but also because her book is based on attachment theory. For those of you that don't know, attachment theory is literally the schoolgirl crush of first-year psych students everywhere. In this episode, Dr. Bryson reassures us anxious moms everywhere that it's not about the mistakes you make. It's about how you fix or repair what happens after. It's not about being a good mom or a bad mom. It's about relating to your child in the best way for both of you. And sometimes that means creating a future much different than your past. Once again, The Power of Showing Up is being officially released on January 7th, 2020. You can find it literally everywhere. And if you'd like to follow Dr. Bryson, you can find her on Instagram at Tina Payne, P-A-Y-N-E, Bryson, or at TinaBryson.com. Hi, Tina. How you doing? Hi,
2: so glad to join y'all.
1: We are here with uh Dr. Tina Bryson, who I probably should have called Dr. Bryson, but um she is pretty amazing, pretty accomplished, and we are talking about her book, The Power of Showing Up, which is your third book. It's actually third published or
2: fourth. Okay. fourth.
1: Fourth. Okay. Oddly, yeah. I have a friend who used to work at Penguin that um was part of your one of your earlier uh, like book launches. And she geeked out when I told her that you had agreed to come on the show. Oh, that's
2: so nice. Yeah. Our first one is, uh, the whole brain child, which is sort of the book we're most
1: known for. That's the one she worked on. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
2: And that was our first one. That was like, it is like when you write books and you, you know, like my, my real power of showing up, our new one is coming in the mail today. And it's like, it's almost like I'm having a baby today. Like I can't wait. It's like a delivery, you know, but, um, uh, but yeah, uh, the, the whole brain child is our first and still just such a, um, such a book that's just out there, which I'm so grateful for. No Drama Discipline is our second one. And I love that book so much. It's sort of like having kids, like after the first one, I'm like, I'll never have another book I (laughs) love as much as this, you know, but I love No Drama Discipline. Um, I think it's a total game changer book. Um, It's the kind of book that says most of what we know about discipline, when you really look at the science makes no sense. And we actually are typically counterproductive when we discipline the way we typically do. So I love that kind of approach. Um, And then The Yes Brain is our third book. And then this new one, The Power of Showing Up, which I'm so excited to talk to y'all about.
1: I, you know, I am excited as well. And uh, initially, I think Sharon and I were both, so we thought it was going to be about something else. We read the description, but we thought I'm like a... PTA mom to my detriment And Sharon is so much more of like Nope fuck that don't have time for that <laughs> There for her kids it's, when she- it's it's more
0: like I don't want To allot my time to that It's not that I don't have time to for that I just don't think it's important Yeah <laughs> Right.
1: Yeah. And and I, um, probably for deep-seated psychological issues relating to my own childhood, uh, you know, I feel like I have to do everything, including this shit. Um. And so we were, you know, we thought it would be a great discussion. And then when we got the book and read it, I was even more geeked out because it's really based on attachment theory. And... Yep. I was trying to come up with an analogy, and um, for like attachment theory and grad school, and I came up with two. Uh, one is it's sort of like when you're in your first year of medical school, and if, if all you have is a hammer everything's a nail and the second which my husband really didn't think I should say but he doesn't listen so I'm gonna say it was like it's kind of like the hand job of grad school of your first year of grad school where like it's it's all you know and what and you see it everywhere and it's like uh, well you don't see hand jobs everywhere but like it's such you know, I don't know where
2: you went to school yeah uh,
1: well uh, Georgetown and then CW post go figure uh, but you know it's like this easy logical complicated and yet complex um understanding of the mother child relationship and essentially that it's, it's got it's got to be it should have been match.com slogan it's like it's got to be a match
2: yeah and i think i think the analogy that um that i have been using that i find myself using is a little uh, more um
1: it doesn't involve handjobs
2: Right, <laughs> um, it's it, it's it's more um, age appropriate for all audiences. Uh-huh, right? um, <laughs> um is here's the thing. Okay, there are a million parenting books out there. There are a million parenting blogs. There are a million parenting podcasts. I mean, like we get advice all the time, everything we read, we're like, oh, here are the 16 things I should have been doing that I wish I had known before. And it can send us into shame spirals or, or we feel like, gosh, I don't have time to read all of that because I'm just trying to get my, my kids, you know, the peanut butter they smeared all over the bathtub, you know, whatever. What I love about attachment science, which is not, it's theory, but it's, it's really it's research-based. Yeah, it is. And it's, it's based on decades and decades and decades of research that have been done cross-culturally throughout the world. And it's actually, attachment theory is, it's, it's, you, everybody gets it at, at some point in, if you've taken a psychology class for sure in grad school. And what's interesting about it is it's one of the the most heavily researched theories in all of psychology and what i love about it is that at the end of the day when we take these decades long longitudinal cross cultural studies there's really one fundamental truth and so the analogy i've been using is to say we've got all of these competing things for our attention our guilt our all our behaviors as parents and this research is really like a north star so it it really can guide everything we do as parents. And we can even talk about some really specific examples. But here's the bottom line of what this science says. The bottom line says the best predictor of how well kids turn out is based on really this one thing. And that is that they have secure attachment to at least one person. Now, we hope that's a mom or a dad or... Know an adult who lives in the home with on a daily basis with the child, Um, a parent that is a caregiver that's there. 40% of kids have a more insecure style of attachment to their parent, Um, but when we have when our child has secure attachment to us, it is a predictor for all these good outcomes on all these different things we measure them on. So what does that really mean, secure attachment? Here's the, here's the way we think about this. At its most fundamental level, we have to start thinking about mammals. Okay, so if you're a chimpanzee in the jungle and you hear a scary noise or some panther starts running towards you, you as a mammal have an attachment instinct to run toward or what we call in the research seek proximity, get close to an attachment figure, someone who will help you stay alive. OK, so that's fundamentally what attachment is, is that we we have this instinctual response that helps us organize our behavior to go to a caregiver that will help us feel connected and protected. It, it allows us to stay alive longer. OK, so um, what that means then is that the way we respond, particularly when our kids are in distress or having a hard time, is a big piece of how attachment gets built. So Dan and I. We are kind of acronym addicts. We love simple ways of taking the science and making it where people can remember it and actually use it. So when we talk about secure attachment, how do we do that for our kids? We like to talk about the four S's.
1: Can we? Yeah. Can can I, I want to back up for a minute. I I love the four S's, but I also think that I know what you're talking about because, um, you and I both like research. So I want to just, can we spend two minutes explaining the strange situation? And, and, you know, because, um, before I went to grad school, I did research for the NICHD and I now, and it was like a 10 year longitudinal study. And basically I had to press a key every time a a mother did something. And that was an attachment study, hands down, you know? Yeah. So, So I think that, you know, the The strange situation was the beginning, and it provides a a really easy good example to understand and then and then let's get to the um, s 's because yeah. Um, I don't know if it comes to light. It comes to light for me. I don't I don't know. Yeah,
2: absolutely. Um, so. so sort of the gold standard for how we measure attachment in early childhood is called the strange situation. It's done with infants who are 12 to 18 months of age, and it's done in a laboratory situation. So don't try the strange situation at home, right? It's not the same thing. Um, but basically, um, you go into a lab uh, and you've got a parent and child. Most of these studies have been done on mothers and babies, but a lot of them have been done on dads too. We just have a lot more mom data than we do dad data. Um, So basically you walk into this room, there's um, some toys in the room, the baby begins to explore the room, possibly, or stay close to the parent. A stranger comes into the room at some point, tries to interact with the baby. Um, But at some point, the mom is given the cue to get up and leave the room. So essentially what's happening is she's leaving her baby in a strange situation. The baby's in a strange room with at times the stranger in the room and at times the stranger not in the room. Um, And they wait a couple of minutes and then mom mom comes back into the room. And this is the important part. We look at what's called the reunion behavior. So what happens to the baby's physiology or stress state when mom leaves and what happens to the baby's stress state or neurophysiology when mom returns and connects with her baby. Okay, so as I mentioned earlier, I, I use the phrase um, insecure attachment. So we all have patterns of attachment that get wired into our brains as expectations for what happens in relationships. So if you have a parent that um, provides connection and protection and does the four S's most of the time, you're going to have secure attachment. And so, um, and we'll talk about what those different behaviors look like. Um, The insecure styles of attachment um, are where, well, let's just, should we just walk through them really briefly? Yes, please. Okay. So um, in the strange situation, I'm going to start with the insecure styles. Or patterns first. Okay, so if you have if you have a parent-child relationship, this is kind of like an emotional desert. So the parent doesn't really respond emotionally. The parent takes care of the baby's physical needs, but if the baby's upset or has a fear response, the parents typically pretty dismissing about those kinds of things. So this pattern of attachment is called um, dismissing. Uh, I mean, sorry, avoidant attachment in infancy and childhood. And to, because the researchers just really wanted to make it confusing, those patterns. I- I know, right? Different things in adulthood. Oh, it's really it's frustrating. So
1: anyway, but wait, um, Tina, avoid- Tina. Let me ask yeah. you a question. So dismissive is it? Does that imply a purposeful intent? Because you know we were talking about your next book coming up about babies before we started recording, and oh my god, I had no idea what to do with my kid, and yeah. I, you know, and I'm sure I messed up a lot, like. I didn't know there was a hunger cry or this cry. But you paid attention to your kid though, right? But not correctly, you know. But me too. (laughs) But that's my question, you know.
0: Is it that does the intention, even if you're not doing it right, is trying to do it, does that count?
2: absolutely because okay. there are these micro moments of communication that happen where our babies, babies actually know, no intent or can start reading intentions super early. Wow. Um, uh, you know, there are these interesting experiments like a 16 months where the researcher looks like they purposefully throw their notebook down on the ground and the 16 month olds don't help her. But if she looks like she's struggling and having trouble and she's accidentally dropping things, they go over and help her. Like That's they, amazing. yeah, they're wow. incredible They're And I think it's actually probably even earlier, we just don't know how to measure it yet. But anyway, um, it's, it's, so here's, here's what happens this. Okay. So this is a, this is a baby that grows up, grows up in an emotional desert where their, their needs emotionally and their internal world are never really talked about or seen. So the focus is on the external world. Um, and then, you know, what happens then is in the strange situation, the baby by 12 months of age has already learned that when they're in distress that they shouldn't ask for help from their parent. Because keep in mind this is a really important part that a lot of people miss in the attachment stuff. Attachment instincts are there to organize behavior so what that means is the baby will know by 12 months of age already what behaviors will elicit the best response from their caregiver so here's how this plays out practically the parent gets up and leaves. this is a baby with what's called an avoidant style of attachment to that parent it would look different with a different caregiver possibly Um, the baby gets upset because they're in a strange room and they don't know what's going on. And their parent just left them and they're 12 months of age and being left alone without someone to protect you at 12 months of age in the deep brain is like someone could eat me and kill me. Right. So it's very, it's a dangerous situation. Right. Cause we're trying to, sur- we're trying to survive at, right. at, at any age. Yeah. Right. So mom gets up and leaves. The baby is in distress. And we know this because we use, uh, you know, psychophysiological measures. So we know the baby is having a stress response, but the baby just kind of looks, keeps playing with the toys. And so everyone's like, wow, look at that really secure, independent baby. But what's interesting is mom comes back in and the baby is stressed, but the baby doesn't cry. The baby doesn't reach for the mom. The baby doesn't show that they're in distress because they've already learned by 12 months that, If I cry and flop on the floor and reach for my mom, it's not going to go as well as if I'm just not going to ask for anything. So that has come from a series of of consistent and repeated behaviors that this parent is going to avoid emotional connection. They're going to dismiss my emotional state, which is why it's called avoidant. And then in adulthood, it's called dismissing. So without other caregivers who provide emotional connection and do differently or without therapy or being in their own relationships where someone really shows up for them in a, in a better way emotionally, they actually grow up to become parents who then raise babies in the same way because their brains have not been wired to give attention to or be responsive in that way. Really, their right hemispheres um, are almost not developed enough to even have attention for that. But the, re- the research is super hopeful. So we know later that if you didn't have that. So let me just say this because this is we don't want people to start panicking um, and that, too late. Is, <laughs> too late. that is that the best predictor for whether or not we're able to provide secure attachment to our kids is not whether or not we had it with our own parents but rather whether we've reflected on those experiences, made sense of them and be like, gosh, my parents weren't really there for me. I mean, every family conversation we had was about the weather and the dog and the neighbors. And we never talked about the internal world. When I was upset or I was having a hard time, they were like, go to your room, like go deal with your own problems. We don't want to, you know, just we're sunshiny, happy people, or we don't talk about that stuff. And, and that was hard for me. And so you can see I've done some reflective work around this. Same. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so once we shine the light of kind of understanding that, we can then create a coherent narrative that allows our brain to develop and become integrated so that we can give attention to and pick up on and identify those moments of communication with our own children. And it's not just that we've sort of like learned that this is important, but rather our brains become more integrated. So it becomes a more natural process.
1: Can I ask you about the, um, the brain inter, you know, the, um, integration. The, yeah. And the right hemisphere versus the left, yeah, left hemisphere. Cause I guess I could see, I could see this being, both a behavioral learning thing, but what's interesting to me is you are you specifically saying it's about wiring and the brain changing. Is there a way that we, you know, like, how is this, I know it might be more complicated or complex than I'm going to understand, but it, how is that measured or how do we know that, or is it simply a, a logical deduction that I'm just not thinking of?
2: No, it can be, it can be measured in that. And it is complex, but let me try to, paint kind of a broad brush to just give the gist and that is that neurons that fire wire and we know that what we give attention to and what we focus attention on activates neuronal um stimulation so we dan siegel calls it um it's kind of a gross um acronym but to snag the brain um snag stands for stimulating no- neuronal activation and growth so let's say um i have a kid who doesn't seem like he has a lot of empathy. If I focus his attention a lot through reading books or when we're out in the world about, oh, that man's carrying big packages. Let's go help him open the door. Or, you know, what do you think that little bear is feeling? You know, what do you think he's going to do next, you know, or whatever, um, that if I give attention to other people's emotions and minds and internal states, I'm actually stimulating the neuronal activation and growth and and wiring in his brain in the middle prefrontal cortex that is part of the brain that sort of um, is one part of many pieces that help us have empathy. So what we know from the attachment science and why it's so great that it's been so heavily researched is that we can see that, for instance, someone with this style of attachment that we've just talked about, this Avoidant and in adulthood, dismissing style of attachment is that if we put them in a brain scanner, people who have an as adults who have a dismissing pattern of attachment actually pay less attentional resources to faces when we put them in scanners and they pay more attention to objects. And this is exactly what happens in the strange situation. So these babies, the mom comes in and the baby might notice mom coming back in, but they're focused on playing with their toys. So their focus is away from relationship and on objects. And so, um, and then also James Cohen, who is at university of Virginia, he's the head of the affective neuroscience, uh, affective science um, center there. He's done really interesting experiments with people who they give electrical shocks to. I know, super fun. Like, what do we, we totally torture people in psychology research.
1: uh, I'm fine with it. They signed up for this. They signed a waiver.
2: But he has found that these attachment styles and patterns play out in terms of how we experience pain and how, how having an attachment figure in the room with us when we're experiencing pain modulates our subjective experience of pain. So if you have um, this dismissing style of attachment, and we're only talking about this one, there are four patterns that we can talk about. Um, um, they actually have less pain when they're alone. They'd prefer to be alone. And if their attachment figure's in the room, they, it doesn't help them modulate pain. And, we're, and it's if you're securely attached, it does. So- <laughs> This is, and and the left brain, right brain stuff is a whole other thing. You know, we know what the right hemisphere is good at and we know what the left hemisphere is good at. So we know the idea of tuning into your body, tuning into another person's mind, emotion. Most of those are more right hemisphere activity, which is why I said more of an arrested development in the right hemisphere because it hasn't had that same stimulation, neuronal activation and growth.
1: It sort of reminds me, I'm going to break this down to a more plebeian uh, Lindsay level, because it sort of reminds me of, you know, uh, your muscle has memory. It's the same way with right. your, your your brain, you know. The,
2: yeah, the brain's an association machine. Right. So if you have someone who, if you're a baby in a strange situation and you have secure attachment because you have a parent who is predictably present to you and tunes into your emotions and responds in a contingent or, you know, appropriate way, um, and really tends to your internal world and comforts you, then you've had repeated experiences to say, um, Because here's what happens in the strange situation with babies who have secure attachment. Mom gets up and leaves. The babies typically cry. They get upset. Um, And as soon as the parent comes in the room, they reach for the parent. They do what we call, that's called proximity-seeking behavior, right? So the parent picks the baby up. The baby is easily soothed and can return to play. And what's interesting is those babies actually don't have as much physiological distress. Even though they're crying, it's almost like they're like... Don't worry, I'm going to cry here and she'll just come come in a second. So if I cry, she's coming. So don't worry, I don't need to get stressed. Like, I'm good. And so they have already learned by 12 months of age that they've had enough experiences. Their brain has made the association between I make a bid for connection, crying, reaching. My parent responds to that and then I'm safe. I'm okay. And so now I'm good. I can go return to the playing. And so what we know when they, um, when we look at the way, the gold standard for measuring this in adulthood is called the adult attachment interview. And what happens is people who either grew up with secure attachment or have what we call earned secure attachment, which is what the rest of of the other categories um, are (laughs) going to be aiming for, um, is that we can flexibly take our attention to relationships and then back away from relationships. So In the other patterns of attachment, we're either running from relationship, connection, and emotion in the past, or we're flooded by it, tangled up in it, preoccupied in it, where we're constantly obsessing over relationships um, emotions, the past, all of those things. So what happens in secure attachment is that our brains wire to be able to flexibly and free. It's actually also called free and autonomous attachment. So you're free to reflect on the past, your own emotions and on relationships, but they don't consume us or we don't run from them. So that's kind of the middle piece. It's interesting
0: I did have a question. <laughs> I, I'm getting better at getting my voice louder would you say that lindsay <laughs> i'm working on myself so my question is with per, does personality play any role in this like when they were doing these experiments yep. did they have like twins with totally different personalities and see their if they had the same exact response because that's a, yeah. yeah
2: that's a really tricky question and even with twins you might have different attachment pattern. So it's, right. it's actually really tricky. And, um, and you might even have the same parent with siblings who have different attachment patterns. Like I'll give just a quick kind of dramatic example, mm-hmm. but let's say you have girl boy twins and you have an abuse, a trauma history where you were abused by your Father and your son looks like your father. He makes when he has tantrums, he makes faces like your dad and he turns red like your dad did. You might actually have a totally different neural wiring when that visual information comes into you and you might respond differently to that kid. But your question is such an important one, and the research is super clear that there is zero correlation with personality and or temperament and attachment. Um, And it's really, and it's also zero correlation with IQ and some of these other things. It's independent of many of the things that we think kind of explain some of the variance in in parent-child relationships. But it is super robust in saying, you know, and 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 because it's one of the ways we also know that is you have a child who has the same temperament or personality who might have one kind of attachment with one parent and a different kind of attachment with another parent. So if you have let's say your mom is avoidant and doesn't see your emotional state and basically you know the way to get the best response from her is to not cry and not ask for help but maybe you have secure attachment with dad and so you put that same baby in that situation and the dad gets up and leaves baby cries reaches for dad dad soothes the baby the baby gets soothed really. so that's one of the ways we know it's
0: not personality or temperament so interesting yeah
1: <laughs> so how do we um, well, it's uh, two things. One is the, when you were describing that, that, you know, the first of the three insecure attachments, it sort of reminded me of what the baby learns to do. It, it reminded me of, um, you know, sort of like a, a child of an alcoholic who knows to tiptoe around when X, Y, Z happens because there's no, they're not going to get what they need emotionally, That's physically, right. et cetera. So that was my sort of lifetime moment movie. Me too, huh? Me too. Okay. Yeah.
2: And, um, you know, I, I had a dad who was not abusive, but he was an alcoholic for the majority of my childhood. And, you know, and he, he, it was really interesting. Okay. I'm going to make a confession here. So when I started studying all this really in a deep way, I was, um, I was, I had just started the PhD program at USC in social work. I had an 18 month old, my first book, my first little guy, and I have three boys. And Um, I was studying the science of this and I had read about attachment parenting. You know, I had read about Dr. Sears, but what was interesting, and I'm I'm a a fan of it as long as you don't, I'm a fan of most parenting styles and approaches uh, or not not the bad attachment ones, but like (laughs) lots of different parenting things as long as you don't do them to the extreme. Okay, so take a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Anyway, so I had been reading about attachment parenting and then I started studying the science and I was like, this is so interesting. All of these, for some reason, hyphenated, attachment parenting words like baby wearing, co-sleeping, demand feeding. I don't know why they're all hyphenated. You don't have to do those. I mean, they do promote connection, but you don't have to do any of those and still have beautiful, secure attachment with your parents. So I thought that was really interesting. But as I was studying this and I learned about the adult attachment interview and how, as you ask these questions, it actually is super revealing of, um, of our adult attachment patterns as adults. And so when I learned about this. Um, I, so I have f- a family dinner with my dad and his parents, right? My gra- my parents were really young when I was born. So my grandparents, um, I still have a grand, I'm 48 and I still have a grandparent um, alive. And the wow. other three have just passed like in the last six years. So oh, wow. um, yeah, so I, I was really lucky to have so much of my adulthood, even with my grandparents, but I'll admit, so we're sitting there and I start asking the like research protocol, adult attachment interview questions. <laughs> and my dad and his parents were like, textbook for the dismissing avoidance style of attachment, but I'll tell you, it was really freeing for me. And I, and I, you know, I did, I grew up in in a home with a dad who was an alcoholic. So I did a lot of, I'm really good at being a pleaser. I'm really good at, um, achieving, um i'm really good at being the peacemaker and walking on eggshells i'm so good at all those things and i'm so grateful now that i know all of this because i'm like those were adaptive mechanisms that allowed me to thrive in better ways and not have as many but, you know it, it helped me survive in the best way in that family and fortunately i had a mom who was like an amazing secure attachment figure for me um but what's important now is to say those adaptive mechanisms that helped me survive in my family those can become a prison in adulthood. Uh-huh. Yeah. So we that's why we have to reflect on them. But so anyway, I'm asking my my family these questions and they were like textbook. And when I when I did this, I mean I still can picture the exact moment sitting in my dad's dining room, asking these questions, hearing the answers. And it became so freeing for me because I was like, oh my gosh, this is not about me. Right. Like my dad didn't hug me a lot. He didn't tell me he thought I was amazing a lot because that's how his brain got wired. And he didn't know how to do that. His bright brain never developed that because his parents didn't. And then my grandparents were telling me about all this trauma from growing up in, you know, in the depression and all these, you know, how parents died in in their early childhoods and all these things. And I'm like, this is a legacy of trauma that created this wiring based on these adaptive patterns. And so now I'm like, it wasn't about me. It wasn't that I was unlovable or whatever. That's how his brain got wired. And it freed me to love my dad in a different way and to not... Um, it just, it gave me a lot of healing actually to really understand that. And then to say, okay, how then has this legacy impacted how my brain is wired and what ways with my own kids, do I dismiss their experiences? Um, those kinds of things.
1: Expect this Patronus. Patronus potato face. It's called Patreon. It sounds like it. It's not. Style. It's not. I promise. Actually, it's a great way for Mommy's listeners. Do you love listeners? Hunter doesn't listen to you. Yeah, yeah I do. Ugh, no shh. Language, Mommy! I listen. Oh, yeah? Well, then tell me what Patreon is. Patreon is a website that allows listeners to support their favorite podcasters. And it gives Mommy a great way to connect with her fans through special bonus episodes. And private Q&As. Oh, and free merchandise. That, too. Shh! Mom, we got this. Go to patreon.com backslash neurotic nourishment. What is that? It's patreon.com backslash neurotic nourishment? I think so. (laughs) Yes, it is. And dear God, let me know you're listening out there because Jesus, no one else in this house is. I mean, ugh. Mom, language. That was bad language? Well, anyways, take a look. Come visit us at patreon.com. Thanks okay so it's my my turn for story story sharing time um because one of the things I've decided to do as I've gotten okay. older and as I've been talking more and um to- tr- sort of come to terms with my own comfort level you know my yeah. uh my mom was and is an alcoholic she is also a uh frequent attempter of suicide that oh my goodness she's somehow she's not successful she's she's a cockroach we call her behind her back mm. but it, but in a good way because she survives yeah. and um you know, and when it was, I'm the oldest one, so it was slightly better for me because I got out of the house. She also has some TBI from a, a car accident, which said- Oh, uh, every- that's a big, yeah, that's a big contributing factor. And so my brother, who's four years younger, got the got sort of the brunt of it. And um, anytime I've ever spoken to my father about a podcast, our podcast, he says, have you seen the show God Friended Me? Because- <laughs> And like every fucking time and it's really, um, it's, it's a struggle bus. I have no doubt. That's why I got into psychology to sort of work through what's wrong with me. And thankfully I also did analytic training. So 500 hours of four times a week therapy has given me some insight, but, um, but we were home for Thanksgiving and my my brother's children and my children were all sleeping in one room. They were making noise. My brother went up and said something to them. And the next thing I know, my, my daughter called my eight year old called me up very upset. And, uh, I went upstairs and like, she's crying and my son's upset. And I said, what happened? And they said, um, uncle Jason said that if we made one more noise, he was going to hurt us. And my, my eight year old says, I know he's not going to hurt that us, but I am not used to adults you know, talking to me that way. That's some good, that's some good
2: processing. That's oh, just geez, some good emotional brilliant. intelligence. Yeah. yeah.
1: And my son was just like, Oh my God, maybe I can sleep in bed with mommy. And, um, <laughs> I obviously got triggered, lost my of shit. Course, of and course. then, you know, um, later on 12 hours, uh, trust me, there's, there's much in between and, you know, uh, but later on I was thinking about it and my mind flashed back to probably one of the weirdest moments when I was in college and I got a call from my dad that my mom had pulled a knife on my brother. And Aww. there was, you know, and I was like, you know what, this is just what this guy grew up with. And yeah. um, no one was harmed in the telling of any of Good. this. Before. Yeah, yeah, You know, but it is this this obstacle for us to go from our past to a different future, you know? It is. And we
2: really have to focus on the hope of that because, you know, what you're talking about there is an example of, and of course I'm not, um, you know, assessing and diagnosing anyone in particular's attachment style and pattern. And the truth is we have lots of influences. Like, you know, I had secure attachment with my mom. I had a avoidant attachment with my dad. Um, I had grandparents who were a mix of that, you know, and there were a lot of, of forces that kind of all come together. If the brain's firing and wiring, there's a lot coming in. So it's, co- it's complex. And so we, as people don't neatly fit into these categories, we just have to sort of look at them as general patterns. But what you're talking about that we talked a little bit about secure, and of course we'll want to come back and end on that. No, but it reminds so me of the much, safety
1: issue. Right. So this, right.
2: this is so important. Because, you know, we've talked about secure, we've talked about the avoidant dismissing. I'll just briefly mention, um, another of the insecure style of attachment pattern is the, uh, is called, um, anxious, ambivalent attachment in childhood. And in the strange situation, they get quite upset and the parent comes in and the parent is unable to soothe them. They right. can't return to play. They become obsessed and preoccupied with, um, Being clingy, um, and and that's because the parental pattern there is unpredictable. Yeah, um, and they they can they sometimes show up for their kids and sometimes they don't, and sometimes they're even intrusive into their their child's you know body or emotions, um, because their own needs flood what's happening in the situation. In adulthood, that's called preoccupied attachment. But where I want to get to is this this fourth type that your story just reminds me of, and that is really the most worrisome of all yeah. of the attachment <laughs> patterns. And um, and it's called um, disorganized attachment. And I, the reason it's that name is because all the other ones we talked about are you might remember, I said that they're all organized attempts to get the best from your caregiver. What happens in disorganized attachment is your caregiver is so unpredictable and so dangerous at times that there isn't a way to organize your behavior around it. There isn't a way to help get the best out of their caregiver. So what the typical parent-child pattern here is, is that, well, let me say it this way. If you're a chimp in the jungle And you have the scary something happening. You run to your caregiver to be connected and protected. What if your caregiver is the source of your terror or the source of your fear and the source of your danger? So what happens is there's literally disconnection or disorganization in the brain because you have one biological circuit of drive that says, go to your caregiver to be safe. And then you have another one that's competing because your caregiver is the danger. Right. So you have another biological circuit that says, "Get the hell away from what is dangerous." So there's actually disorganization in the brain, and so that's definitely what we talk about when we have trauma, that, like that you've been talking about.
1: Right, and it's also, I think, a lack of predictability. You know, in industrial organizational psychology, like what's a good manager? It's someone who does what they say what they're going to do. Right, well. they're going to do it, and I would say. I think the same goes for parenting. I think it's the um, the lack of knowing, like the, the you know lifetime alcohol movie. You know, alcoholics. Right. If you can tiptoe around, you know, then you at least know what to avoid. But, right. But certainly, it's it's a lot more frightening the the unpredictability of it.
2: It is, and I think that's 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 definitely an important thing to keep in mind. Is that you know predictability is what helps us keep. Be safe. And if your environment is fairly predictable, then you can give attentional resources to other things like learning or, right. uh, you know, or playing and exploring, you know. But if you have an unpredictable caregiver, you have to be hypervigilant to watch for safety all the time, which is why, honestly, like, I think a huge portion of people who are diagnosed with ADHD do not have ADHD, they actually have trauma history. And so what happens is then we put them on a stimulant, which makes things worse, because then they're hyper vigilant, because they don't feel safe in the world. And then we add a stimulant, which makes them even more in hyper, you know, hyper aroused states. And so this is why, you know, the ACEs stuff, the adverse childhood experiences and trauma informed schools and and trauma informed doctors and clinicians is really important. But I want to come to this place to say, look, now that we've triggered the hell Of everybody by talking through all of these, yeah. Now tell us how we can how we can be good parents and overcome our past. Yeah. Well, so unpredictability in a way where you're dangerous that's one thing. But here's the hope. The hope is kind of twofold. One is, and that's one of the reasons I love this research. One is, again us being able to provide secure attachment. And it, this, by the way, this is not just in our parent-child relationships. Attachment patterns are in all of our significant other relationships. They're in our relationships with our siblings, our friends, you know, our bosses and coworkers. All relationships have typical patterns to them. Sure. So this, even if you don't have kids or whatever, you can be thinking about all your relationships. But hope one is that regardless of what, you know, what it doesn't matter what happened to you as much as it matters that you reflect on what has happened to you and make sense of it and have in the research, what we call a coherent narrative. And a coherent narrative is really where you're not running from the past in your story, but you're not tangled up in it and flooded with it, where it intrudes itself upon your daily life, but rather we're free to reflect on it and to make sense of it. And, and that you know, that is huge. So if you find that you do things as a parent that don't make sense to you or that aren't helpful, or, you know, lots of times, you know, we might act in ways as parents that we don't like, or doesn't make sense to us. And it might be, it might not be that we have a dysfunctional attachment situation. We have to, it might be that you haven't peed in six hours and you're hungry and your kid woke (laughs) you up 16 (laughs) times last night, you know, and that's why you're being reactive. But if we find this, these themes or these ways that we tend to get triggered I would encourage us all to say, that is an invitation to peel back the layers and say, what is the meaning of that for me? What is, you know, what's that, what's happening there? So I'm that's... having a
0: moment right now. Yeah. Can okay, I ask good. you Yeah, Because as I'm listening to this, I, this one blaring example keeps coming up, which is, so my dad was not an alcoholic. Neither of my parents were, but he was definitely emotionally absent. Never gave me a compliment. Never really paid attention to me. My that mom was- avoidant yeah, com- yeah. Completely, like- the poster child for it. Now, I've been finding myself sometimes being dismissive of my older one who is very very dramatic. I mean, that's <laughs> just like her personality. She's extremely yeah. dramatic. She makes like mountains out of molehills and I find myself dismissing but being conscious of it, but then yeah. wondering like am I becoming my dad? Mm, That's such a good
2: question. And I think, you know, I think you probably like I do. um, And like Lindsay does, we have these sort of, um, you know, we have these sort of tendencies maybe to do that because that was modeled for us. And it's how our brains got wired to some degree. And we know that once we have reflected and have this, we have our earned secure attachment in that area, that the brain actually integrates and wires in ways that allows us to Respond in better ways. Right. So I think, you know, you, what I, I guess what I would say is if I, if that's me and I'm thinking about that, there's a piece of me that says me dismissing her reactivity may be rooted to some degree in my own attachment stuff. And I would also ask the question, and, and the minute we become aware of it, and the minute we become so, it's, it's you know, Dan talks about how without awareness we don't have choice, and once we shine the light of awareness on it, we begin to have um, kind of break down an automaticity or a, an automatic reaction. So that's number one is to say I know I have that tendency at times. Yeah, and. I am working on that, and I do work on that, and I do a good job with that. My guess is that a huge piece of you kind of dismissing is actually driven more by two other things. One, I think you probably have a fear that you may or may not be conscious of that her overreactivity and, and drama mm-hmm. will cost her opportunities and relationships, yes. and will will make the world percent. hard for her. A so million percent. I, I think it's it, a big piece of that is just a naturally appropriate fear kind of thing, and you you want her to to regulate some of yeah. that so that she doesn't have those negative consequences socially and in her world. And I think right. another part of it is it's a pain in the ass to deal with a child <laughs> like that in a consistent way and probably yeah. sometimes you're just like I'm done with this. Yeah. And I think that's that's Both. natural and appropriate too. So <laughs> okay. so I guess this is such a good example Sharon because I you know, I don't want to be the hammer where everything's a nail. I think attachment science is super important and it's not Everything, you know, mm. I think, you know, I, if I look through everything with that lens, uh, I look through that lens with everything, you know, that, that's not healthy and that's not, it's not reality. And so right. I think if you have a dramatic kid who, who is wearing and who you know might be a lot for other people, that's probably driving you more than that other, especially because you're aware of it and you're reflecting on it. So that's Ugh, good.
0: I feel better.
1: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Wait, <laughs> so- I, I feel worse because I didn't mean that like attachment theory was like nonsense. I mean that you, I think it's an, you can look at, like when you were talking to Sharon about, you know, yes, maybe sometimes her kid's a pain in the ass. I like her, but whatever. But you know, it's also in a I way, like her too. It, I know.
2: Every, but like, everybody's kid is a pain in the ass sometimes. Yes. And right. we are pain in the asses as parents sometimes too. That's human.
1: But like, it's also like, you know, sort of a, what attend, what, um, what actions do you attend to? Do you not? Do you, you know, reinforcement, non-reinforcement it, I think it's just an easy and, extremely not easy, you know, um, lens to look through. And I think what I meant is we all just got so excited about it in grad school, because frankly, a lot of us were probably there to figure out what the hell had happened to our child. Well,
2: and it does, it is one of the most important and helpful ways for us to understand how we became who we are. So I'm not at all just, I don't want to dismiss the importance of attachment either. I'm just saying there are so many things that complexly layer in. Mm -hmm. And I I think, you know, that one message of hope is to say, look, you know, we really can earn our secure attachment by reflecting on these experiences and knowing, gosh, you know, I know that's a tendency for me and yeah. I'm going to be watching it and I'm going to continue to grow and be aware of it. And this, and, and by the way, if you've had trauma, Dan has this amazing analogy. You know, if a dog bites you, your instinct is to yank your hand away, but actually that that shreds a lot of the tissue on your hand. Mm -hmm. What you're supposed to do is reach a little further into the dog's throat so that it gags and it can release its grip. And then you basically end up with puncture wounds, which heal pretty nicely. And so Dan says, if you have had trauma or you have had, you know, experiences that are more like disorganized attachment kinds of things, we have to have the courage to reach into the throat of trauma and to reach into the throat of what doesn't make sense or what wounded us um, so that it can release its grip on us and we can begin to heal. And so we know that that, that that can happen. The second message of hope, which leads us more into the practical, what do we do as parents, is that even though predictability is important, it doesn't have to be that predictable. So here's what I'm, so it's different to say predictable in terms of being a danger. That's a totally different thing. You should never do that if you can avoid it, but the attachment research says, and this is back to, um, you know, Winnicott's the good enough parent, which is the idea that if you are, thank God for Winnicott, (laughs) (laughs) the idea that if you provide connection and protection. And we'll talk more specifically about the four S's in a second. If you provide attuned, connected experiences with your kid where they feel safe and all of these things about 30% of the time, 30% people. Wow. Wow. I could even eat healthy 30% your Your child can develop secure attachment with you. And so this is, you know, I mean, I think parents obviously quantity of time matters, you know, you can't just never see your kids. But I think this this is this goes back to really truly in a time when all of us are so overscheduled, parenting is stressful, we have so much going on. What our kids need most from us is our presence. And so when we're with them to be present and to really tune into what's happening um, and to provide these four S's um, is that if we do that predictably enough, our kids can develop secure attachment. And when they develop secure attachment, their brains develop in ways that allow them to have better social and emotional intelligence, stronger, healthier relationships, better mental health, and you name it. There's a bunch on that list.
1: So I also feel like if you're show if you're if you're reading this book, you're trying, which is
2: absolutely. And you know what's really interesting too is that this idea of you know, this kind of hyper parenting world, you know, that we live in. <laughs> helicopter um, parenting. You mean yeah, the
1: parent guess, portal where we get to see what our kids are doing and what before uh, they, Yeah. <laughs> I actually
2: I actually never use the term helicopter parenting anymore because mm. that's too passive to describe what I'm actually doing.
1: Oh, wow. <laughs>
2: because helicopters hover, Helicopters yeah. hover, but they're right. not so much intruding. Right. I actually think like the, I heard, I've heard about snowplow parenting. I actually oh, heard, heard that too. I call it curling parenting where you sweep yeah. the ice in your child has no <laughs> <It> box. <bounce>. creates <laughs> um, monsters.
0: But I'll tell you, okay. I had a colleague,
2: I had a colleague, he and I were doing a presentation, a day long presentation. I'm not going to say his name right now because he might not want his name attributed to what I'm about to say. But, um, he and I were doing a day long presentation on the impact of screens and, um, and, and, um, internet addiction and those kinds of things on development and relationships and particularly in adolescence. And we were teaching together and he called it, are you ready for this suppository parenting? Oh God. (laughs) It's that intrusive. That's amazing. Okay. So (sighs) here's the, here's the deal for this book, the power of showing up. So if you are a parent who so here's the point you don't ha- we don't have to do all of that. people think this hyper parenting is normal, and in fact, there was a study that came out that said that parents who can't afford to put all their kids in all the club teams and like do all the enrichment classes and all that think that it's the ideal and that they're not doing it and that is not what the research says. The research says the thing your kid needs most from you is for you to show up and particularly when they're having a hard time showing up so for those of us who are in the hyperparenting world, who think we have to do all these things, we don't have to do all those things. And for the parents, for those of us who are overscheduled and distracted and not present, our the answer is the same for both those kind of opposite groups. And that is that our kids need us to show up. What does that look like? What do I mean when I say our kids need us to show up? And this is where we've been talking about the four S's this whole time. I'm about to
0: explode because <laughs> I haven't gotten to sorry.
2: <laughs> no, it's good because we've had all this such good other conversation. So the four S's are feeling safe. And I'll go back through and describe them in a minute. Safe, seen, soothed. And when those three experiences of feeling safe, seen, and soothed enough, predictably enough, happen, then secure happens. The fourth S is secure. And I don't mean secure like I feel secure about myself. What I mean is that my brain has wired to securely know that if I am in distress, if I have a need, if I need somebody, someone will show up for me predictably. I know that. And you know what, in some ways, and I think that's why it's been so healing to do this work is that even though my dad did not show up for me emotionally, if I ever had a need, I could call him or I could reach for him and he would show up. So there was enough of that there, even though he was emotionally totally arrested development (laughs) in lots of ways, he did show up and he showed up, he showed up, you know, financially, and he, that was his language of love. Mine which, too. You know. Mine too. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, if we can kind of orient ourselves to go, okay, how did, and that's what we do in this book too, is at the end of each chapter, we talk about our own, like, what was it like for you in terms of safety, in terms of being seen, in terms of feeling soothed, and in terms of knowing that security, is to ask, like, in what ways did your parents show up for you? You know, and let me give some attention to that instead of the focusing so much on what they didn't give me. Right. So what do I mean by safe? Okay. So safe is obviously, we know we all have to keep our kids safe, but, and people are, I, I know some people will read this book and be like, oh, I'm not even going to read that chapter. Like, obviously I like buy car seats and that is <laughs> that, not, not what, not what I'm talking I mean, obviously keeping our kids alive, that's important. Okay. Right. Obviously. But being safe, like the whole idea of helping your child feel safe is first of all, do no harm. Don't be the source of fear and terror in your child. Discipline should never include your child feeling terrified and afraid of you. Okay. Agreed. Mm -hmm. And the second piece of that is to know that when your child is in distress, maybe they're having a temper tantrum about something that is so flippin' ridiculous that you're like, are you fricking kidding me? Like there's 16 other goldfish with perfectly intact tails in the bowl. Why have you been crying for 10 minutes about that one? You know, so here's the thing is the main purpose and core of attachment where we started is that being connected and moving close to your caregiver actually regulates your neurophysiological state. Your heart rate starts to slow back down so let's say you're really upset or you're really afraid as a kid you know my my thirteen year old was super freaked out by a spider in the middle of the night the other night he came in and you know, my job is to go like to go in there and be like, I, I'm sure we're going to find it. I've got this. Let's I'm right here with you. And <laughs> you like, just oh. embarrassed the hell out of him. I so. I know, I know. <laughs> But I was like, I was like, okay. I was, And I, so I, I first start with him, you know, under like, I, I get you. I told him I'm like, I wouldn't want to sleep with a big spider in my room either. That is scary. I'm with you. We're going to figure this out together. Okay. So, and that, that, that whole thing of you are safe, I am with you, we'll figure it out together. That's a beautiful, we actually have signs up in our clinical practice at the Center for Connection for our patients, you are safe, we are with you, we'll figure it out together. Um, But what happens is I go in his room and I start looking for the spider and immediately his heart rate gets to slow down, his breathing gets to slow down, his stress hormones get to be dampened because someone has showed up to be like, I got this. Mm. So, and, and honestly, in lots of ways, one of the ways we help our kids feel safe is by providing boundaries and limits, yeah, and so you know and so this is not a permissive parenting approach at all. Uh, the way we help our kids feel safe, seen, and soothed while setting limits i 'll just give an example, same kid when he was five tantrum to get into the tub. And normally I would have been like, fine, just skip the tub. Um, but he was so filthy. He had to get in. So he, tantrum to get into the tub, then tantrum to anticipate having to get out of the tub, then tantrum getting out of them. I mean, he was total meltdown kid. So I say to him, like, you're so disappointed. You don't want to get out of the bathtub. So I'm like, it's time to get out. And he starts screaming and kicking and yelling. And I'm like, you're so disappointed. You don't want to get out. And then I pause because I'm just being present. First thing is I have to keep myself regulated. So I stay a safe person and not a scary person who will actually flood his nervous system and make him more chaotic, which is what we often do, which makes discipline totally go out the window because then they can't learn anything. So that's a whole other talk. Um, So (laughs) I say, you're disappointed. You don't want to get out. And then I say, it's time to get out. Either you can get out or I will help you as gently as I can, I say to myself, so I don't squeeze his slippery little body too, too tight, um, As help, as gently as I can, I'm going to pull you out of the tub. And as I'm pulling him out of the tub and he's screaming and kicking and yelling, I say, I know you're so upset. And if you need to cry and yell, I'm right here with you. I know you're so having such a hard time. So I'm saying yes to his internal experience. I'm connecting with his internal experience. So his internal experience, I'm so mad, matches my response where I say, I can see you're so upset. Which as opposed to saying, why are you being yeah. such a baby? Like, you know, right. you didn't even want to get in the tub. Now you don't want to get out and I can start. You can see how easily that. Yeah. Can the it
0: and all. So
2: then his internal experience and my response are not a match. So that's like a dismissing avoidant kind of response. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so what happens then is I say yes to his emotions. I say yes to uh, seeing him. So he feels, he feels safe. Mom's just keeping her boundaries and she's not adding to the mix with, bringing more screaming and yelling and chaos. I feel seen. She's like, I can see that you're really upset. She's like, I'm right here with you. So that's the soothed piece. Um, and then over time he knows if I have big feelings and I am totally dysregulated, mom can handle this. She's got this. I, and she's going to help me. And what happens is when a parent amplifies a child's distress in big ways repeatedly, cause we all do it all the time. Um, then the child learns when I have big feelings and my nervous system goes into, you know, beyond what's tolerable stress, more into toxic reactive, big stress. Um, I have a threat response. Even Um, my mom is not only not going to help me, she's going to actually have a threat response too. And so I'm totally on my own. I, and so what happens is, and this happens all the time in schools where kids get in trouble for things they can't help uh, or with parents. And so then the kid walks away and it's like, you have one experience where it's like I get dysregulated and I I maybe can't help it because my brain hasn't fully developed or maybe I have a sensory processing issue or maybe I'm just really, really tired today or whatever it is going on or I have ADHD. I can't help it. But when that happens for me and I have these big, scary, stressful feelings, someone shows up for me. So I actually don't feel as stressed. I don't feel as anxious because someone's going to help me. And so actually behaviors and reactivity actually decrease over time when we show up in an emotionally attuned way versus I have really big feelings that I can't help and I get really upset and then I get in trouble. That's really scary. So now I have more anxiety and now it's scarier to be, you know, in my house or at school. So it actually amplifies more reactive behaviors, which then we respond in more and more punitive ways and it actually makes things worse and worse and worse. So this idea of safe, seen, soothed and secure. Again, back to this idea that it is my North star. So whatever is happening with my kid or my husband or my best friend or my mom or my sister, anybody else, whatever particular behavior or situation is going on, I try to think of it literally like in my mind, that is a back burner issue. I have to stir that pot. I have to tend to it so it doesn't boil over or burn. But my front Burner is always helping the other person feel safe, seen, soothed, so that they know I will show up. Their neurophysiology changes when we do that. And so I've given a little kid example. Let me give a teenager example. So, and I won't give specifics because I really try to protect, um, you know, my kids' identity and the identities of family. So this may be my kid. It may be a client I saw. It may be a friend's kid. I'm not going to sure. be specific. Um, but um, I was. I was trying to think through so I could give really good advice. Well, now, you know, it wasn't my kid, um, about, <laughs> about um, a, a teenager who had come home drink, um, drinking. Um, and you know, the mom, the mom who would typically respond to this was a screamer, yeller, overreactor, a lot of fear activation in her. Um, and that was her typical interaction. So she, <laughs> She called me and she's like, okay, my kid came home drunk last night and he's still sleeping. And so I, last night I kept it together. He was kind of sick. He was throwing up. So I didn't yell too much. I was like, you just need to go to bed. And so she's like, now I have an opportunity to think about how do I want to respond? So I was like, all right. And, and so, you know, I'm like trying to think this through. Okay. I haven't dealt with this yet. What do I, I mean, I've done clinically helped families, but I'm trying to put myself in her situation. And so I'm thinking this through and I'm like, okay. Four S's. That's my, that's always my North Star. So, this actually was like this huge aha for me. And I think it's such an amazing response. I'm so proud of this advice I gave her. Um, And that is to say, safety is the number one thing. So, my advice to her was to sit him down and say, and make sure she was regulated first, to say, All right, my number one job is to keep you safe. And when you don't keep yourself safe, then I will be stepping in and the rains are coming in and I will be more protective of you because I will always, always make sure you are safe. And so here's what that's gonna look like. So then they had to brainstorm together. That means he has to check in more, he can't go to any more parties like that. You know, no keys, no the car is not going to be available anymore unless it's driving to and from school. You know, he had not been drinking and driving, thank goodness. Yeah. But but basically safety became the guiding thing. And then to say, I understand, you know, your friends were drinking and I I know that's really hard. And you were probably curious about that. Tell me about your experience about that. What, what did you like about it? What did you not like about it? So that's the scene part of it. And then the soothed part was to say, you know, are you feeling okay today? I know that didn't feel good last night and that's really uncomfortable to feel (laughs) hungover. Um, and so really, but that safety piece, that child came out of that, Um, I mean, they actually, it was like such a moving story to hear about the fallout because typically this mom would scream and yell and the kid, it would actually create more division in the the relationship where he would tell her less, show her less, you know, that kind of thing. But it actually created connection and and he felt loved coming out of that interaction. It was just really beautiful. So I think this is a way that just keeping in mind, how do I respond? I want my kid to feel safe. And that means me, not me being a scary person. Um, I'm going to, connect and redirect. I'm going to say, I understand that's how you feel. And then now let's talk about what we need to do about it. So really the bottom line of all of this is that when our kids are at their worst, that is when they need us the most. Mm. And they need us to provide that safe, kind of safe haven. That's what we call it in the research actually. So you think about a boat that goes out and gets all battered up in the world and that we create this safe haven by our relationships and saying i will always be a safe person you can come to i'm i'm here
1: i you know and i would also add or suppose or guess but this might be my fucked up attachment but like but you know i think when i'm at my when i like i'm not a huge yeller but if i'm angry or yelling i'm it's usually cuz i'm worried that they're not doing something safe yeah. you know even if it's like tie your shoes tie your shoes and you know, the third time, I'm like, tie your shoes. Well, my kid's yeah. gotten two concussions from not tying her damn shoes. You know, right. so I think there's something to be to be said about that. I also like what you said a lot about the physical proximity and the, calming, yeah. you know, the calming down. Um, my daughter was hospitalized at eight weeks for meningitis, oh. and so I think, and she had to have a spinal tap. So oh, my husband and I think that has you know scarred her for life in that she's angry more, uh. and so. Uh a timeout didn't might- gen- yeah, say She might she might have a little bit more um, activated nervous system
2: reaction to threat response because of that medical trauma, you know. Yeah. Um, which is why even more, it's not damaging her for life. It means that it, you know, in her growing up years, she needs a lot more experiences of probably regulating, of of you saying, "I'm here, baby, I've got you." You know sure. what I mean? And well, like almost like you're petting her little nervous
0: system. A hundred percent.
1: And with my son, if he did something wrong, we'd put him in timeout. With my daughter we couldn't put her in timeout. And what we find, my husband's a psychologist also. um, And so what we finally sort of came to realize, like, because she would be just tantruming is we would like wrap her in a blanket, please note, not her head, not anything like that, Mm -hmm. but sort of hold her in the blanket for the timeout so that she was able to calm down, not realizing that we were actually activating that. Um, yeah, and sometimes what
2: happens, and, and every kid is different, as you just uh, exemplified. But you know, for some kids, you know, when we and and most of the time, parents don't use timeouts in the way that they've actually been studied as effective. You right, know, we do it in a punitive, angry way, and that's actually not at all what the research no. has has looked at in terms of it being effective. Um, but when we send kids away from us, particularly when we're angry, and often when they're dysregulated, which is why we're probably doing it in the first place and we send them away from us in angry ways, like go to your room or go to the naughty chair or whatever that is, we're actually potentially for some kids activating attachment needs. So then they have the dysregulation of what's already happening. Plus then they're, you know, when they're in distress, that's when they might most need connection and we're sending them away from us. So for some kids, it actually makes things worse. Um, And really the purpose of timeout is time to get regulated again. Right. For, some, for some kids, they prefer to be alone. They'll be right. like, leave me alone. I want to be by myself. I want to be by myself and I'm dysregulated for a little yeah. bit uh, before I, sometimes depending on the situation. Um, but other kids, you know, just having a parent present and sit with them and be yeah. like, do you need help calming down? I'm right here with you. And really that, that's not excusing the behavior because, and this is, again, the whole other talk from No Drama Discipline, but the whole point and purpose of discipline is to teach so that they can do better the next time. And the brain is either in a reactive or receptive state. When it's in a reactive state, in a, you know when they're tantruming or yelling or dysregulated, they actually can't learn very well. So in the name of discipline and holding them accountable for their behavior, the first thing we should do is connect and soothe and downregulate their reactivity often through connection and empathy, like you're so mad right now. You're having such a hard time. I'm right here with you. It was, you know, I often tell a story about my kid hit his brother. Um, my little guy hit his older brother and, you know, I comforted the older brother. Then I went to, to the little guy and I was like, Oh and he, well, he just he was a total perpetrator, like I have to address the behavior that's not okay, but the first thing I did was I was like, "Oh, you're so mad. What happened come here and I'm right. like, "Oh, and he tells me, and I'm like, "Oh, that would make me so mad too. I understand, And I calm him down, and within like a minute he's or two he's calm again, and then I can say, "Hey, you really hurt Luke, let's talk about that And then he's in a receptive state in which he can learn, so timing is everything, and in the name of discipline, the first thing we might need to do in terms of efficacy is to soothe and to, cal- you know, to calm and provide empathy and connection. That's not an opposite of setting boundaries and having limits and addressing behaviors. They have to go together and actually to be most um, efficacious. Is that a word?
0: Yeah, that we're going to so say yes. <laughs> that just makes so much sense to yeah. me. Yeah. This is an important book. I, I feel like it should be like, you know, when you go to school and you have like required reading. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yes, I know. I know. It's it's really really important. Yeah. Well, and um and I think again there's so much advice out there and there's so much stuff to do that I think right. That's why I think this is so helpful is to hold on to the four S's. And, you know, at the end of the book, we always have a refrigerator sheet, which basically has the summary of the whole book, right. you know, like safe, seen, sue secure, will be there with a couple of sentences after them so that so you can make a copy and put on your refrigerator and put it on your, in your car and, and yeah. to remind ourselves because it's so important. And I think, you know, this is a good way to kind of think about this is to say, look, we're going to mess up all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, the 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 times we yell and I think you're right, you know, Lindsay, that you know, it's sometimes it's appropriate to amplify our voice because it's a safety issue, you know. I don't know if um, it's
1: appropriate. I just know that it my it, it that's my triggers well, it's, it's,
2: it's a reflection of your own nervous system arousal right Absolutely. so that's the first thing is to learn learn how to and and one just really quick trip uh, trick um to regulate ourselves is to like if you actually put a hand on your chest and a hand on your belly sure and take that's a, a deep breath there, yeah yeah and where your exhale is longer than your inhale that actually helps down regulate our nervous system It's a really good trick and when you do it a couple times your kids now start seeing that as a trigger like mom's about to yell so it's actually a good, like <laughs> it's a good foreshadowing for them to like rein it in a little bit, but yeah. but I think that um you know I think what ha- you know like my kid we were in a parking lot he started to run out into the parking lot and I was like stop you know and I yelled yeah. and I think that was appropriate yeah and I think that uh, other times you know when I'm like put your damn shoes on you know or whatever maybe they're not so much appropriate but I think in those moments you know in that moment after I yelled at JP in the parking lot I I pulled him to me and I said that scared me yeah and again like then what I you know we do the name it to tame it which is in Um, whole brain child, which is where we're telling the story of what happened. Like when you ran out there, I was worried a car was going to hit you. That scared me. That's why I yelled at you. I know that was scary for you. We were scared together and be like, I'm sorry if that scared you, but this is really important. And then other times here's the, here's a really important takeaway. And that is that when we mess up and we will, we can give ourselves a lot of grace and a lot of kindness to ourselves. And because that's human and if we didn't mess up, the world would be a really scary place. Actually, when we when we're kind of less than ideal. Um and then we repair with our kids, it actually expands their window of tolerance to know that like there's conflict in relationships and we're okay anyway. So we're doing good actually. Well, you just Um, said the magic word, the magic word. Yes. I was was waiting. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So the key is when we have ruptures, when we yell, when we're distracted, when we miss something, maybe we're trying to joke around with our kid, but they feel like we're making fun of them. Or Mm. maybe we're like, you're being really kind of making a big deal out of nothing or Mm. whatever. Those are micro things, or maybe we've blown up and we scream and yell or we grab our kids arm to hard or whatever it is, the key to ruptures is repair, repair, repair as long as we go. And, and some of the phrasing I really like is to say, I'm really sorry that I handled it that way. I wish I had handled it differently.
0: I, I did that like- yesterday. <laughs> Yay! Yay! I did that. I'm, yeah. Yeah. Okay, good. And to say, That's I'm good. sorry. Yeah. I, yeah.
2: Apologize and say, yeah. you know, sometimes when I get mad, I don't always put my brakes on and I'm, I, I'm practicing that. And I know you're practicing that too. Will you forgive me? And I think mm-hmm. repairs then create more connection and more intimacy. And they also model Model for our kids how to make things right when they've when they've messed up so and it, and it I, shows
1: respect it really shows them that does. their feelings yeah. are valid yeah, yeah. it
2: does so i think i want to you know i really want to leave people with three messages of hope one is regardless of how you were parented or what kinds of relationships you've had and whether or not people are to the degree to which they've shown up for you i think um we can walk away with the hope knowing that if we reflect on those experiences and, and understand them and make sense of them, we can change how our brain is wired for relationships. So we can change our attachment patterns. The second is that kids do well with good enough parenting. And that yeah. if we, if Thank we goodness. show up, if, if we're flawed and we mess up all the time, if we show up particularly when they are at their worst. And sometimes that looks like bad behavior that when we, when they need us, we're there, that's the essence of everything. And so just keeping those four S's in mind is the guiding light, um, that we don't have to be perfect. We just really need to be present and show up and we can do that at least some of the time. So that's the second message of hope. And the third is that it's okay to mess up, and when we do, we can repair. And I do want to just say too, if you find yourself as a parent really harming your children, if if you're listening to this and going, yeah, but I think the ruptures I'm bringing to the table are more like that disorganized. I feel yeah. like I really do scare my kids a lot. If you're doing, if if you're identifying with that, I would just want to offer you like courage and encouragement and hope to say, this is an invitation. You've listened to this today. This is an invitation to say, I need to go do some reflection, reflection. And if you find yourself, you know, harming your kids, get some help, reach out to somebody because we know the brain wires from experiences and you can get some help and start providing new and different kinds of experiences that will let your kid recover and repair and heal from those. And, and, it's not too late. So I just really want to say it's never too late for us to start making changes in our relationships with our kids, no matter where we are or in your marriage or in, you know, if if you feel like, God, I'm not really good at showing up. I'm kind of disconnected. I'm kind of checked out, you know, be like, I'm going to do something today where I show up in this relationship and I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, see what, that person might be feeling and give a response to that, you know, so we can always start making moves in that direction.
1: Tina, this is so wonderful. This is um, amazing. Um, thank thank you, you so much. You've given so much useful, exciting information, and I'm definitely going to go read those other three books. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's what I was thinking too. I was like, I need to get those other three books.
0: They're,
2: uh, all, in, they're all in audio form. Dan and I actually read awesome. all of our books, so you can listen to them in audio form as okay. well.
1: Sharon is an audio. I cannot I handle that. I love audio books. I do love too. Them. I do so, too. If I can ask one more question, yes. and I, I feel super foolish um, because I'm in awe of you and embarrassed, but it is a Aww. question that we ask every guest on okay. our... Wait, Sharon, are you embarrassed that I'm going to ask this question? No, I'm happy for you. you okay. Um, <laughs> I couldn't tell because the window got smaller and I'm blind. So we try to ask every guest on this because... Um, so I co-wrote a book on... It's called 10 Steps to Finding Happy, A Permanent Guide to Satisfaction, it's coming out March 20th, 2020. Oh, congratulations. Thank you. Um, And it's coming out in accordance with the United Nations International Day of Happiness. It's a weird thing, but I'm happy that it's coming out with it. And um, uh, it's myself, my co-host, and then 24 expert writers, Sharon being one wow, of them. Wow, excellent. And we all talk about sort of things that make us happy and how to sort of eke some more happiness into every day. But one of the things that came up um as Sharon and I were discussing it sep- sort of separate from the book but an interesting question is sort of how do we define happiness and w- what are our expectations and so um with everything you've got going on and with all your pieces flying around and I'm very curious how you define happiness because I'm sure you're, you're fulfilled by all of this yeah. stuff and overwhelmed but um well, you know, how would you define happiness?
2: You know, um, I I recently thought about this question. Um, really, in, in response <laughs> in response to something else, but I um, I think one of the most interesting ways for me to think about happiness is um, this sense of um, being present to gratitude, and um, when I do that, I feel like. I'm, I'm actually, you know, we all, we kind of talk about a happiness set point. I'm actually a person who's happy most of the time, even in the midst of total adversity. Mm. And, um, and I think as I started to wrestle with that, like what, how, what, how does that possible or what does that look like? Or what, what's, what's that about? I started to think about how happiness is sort of connected for me to a sense of gratitude and awe that there there are things that are just beautiful and beyond myself in the world um, like relationships and like nature and God and all of these different things so when for me being focused on uh, I guess this I'm giving a really clunky answer here I'm super hugely fascinated with the whole idea of attention and where we focus our attention and what pulls sure. our attention and how our brain processes information and all of this stuff and I think for me happiness is giving attention to What creates a sense of peace and equanimity and gratitude inside of me? And so, even in the midst, like I had a kid who was very, my college kid was very, very ill in February last year, away, and I had to go to him, and he 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 could have died. It was very scary in the hospital, and and it was, and I was there by myself, and it was really hard. And I had another kid who deals with chronic health issues, and we were selling our house and moving. Like there was just like everything chaotic happening all at once, and I. I felt happy during that time because I was like, I'm so happy I get to be here with my kid here in the hospital. Like, I'm sure. so glad oh, there wow. are doctors here. Like, thank God for the doctors. And yeah. I'm so excited we get to move into a house. Like, how wonderful is that? And thank God yeah. for the, you know. And so I, I think the idea of I can feel gratitude and give attention to what what feels good and right and and well at the same time that I can also be experiencing difficult challenging emotions and fear and and adversity too so for me happiness is a focus on gratitude and kind of being open to other things that are happening outside of that one tiny little experience in the moment
1: and it's a decision it sounds like
2: yeah it is a decision and I also know that uh, what fires and wires so I think it becomes, it's, it's, Becomes who we are, you know. Sure. We we become wired for that. I'm not saying I always do that. I mean, I get mad and I get petty and I get snarky and all those things <laughs> all the time. You mean you're um, human? <laughs> yeah. And I and I, I'm grateful that I am right. Yeah. So, but I do think I, I think um, and I had parents who were constantly like, "Gosh, it's such a beautiful day," and "Oh my gosh, how good does this food taste?" And you know, "Oh, the dog is so sweet." You know, like we we always kind of talked about good things and we always gave attention to that. So part of that is how I'm wired but I also know that I intentionally cultivate that. I intentionally practice gratitude. And we know from the science, it changes the brain. And so for me, happiness and gratitude are too tangled to pull apart. They're, they're one in the same.
1: You've just encouraged me to point out more happy, beautiful yeah. You know, warm kids, fuzzies. Crazy, right. right. Yeah.
2: Just yeah. like, and, and, you know, little prompts, like I, I love Ugg boots. I, I, <laughs> I would live in <laughs> them amazing. if my, if my best friend was like, you can't wear those out every day. Like I probably would. But, um, every time I slip them on, I like, that's a prompt to me. I'm like, Oh, they're so fuzzy and me warm, too. you know, like, yeah. And, uh, and, and so just little moments like that are like, every time you get in your car and you close the door, Think of one thing you're grateful for. So just give yourself little prompt really nice. moments yeah. like that and do it with your kids, yeah. you know, model
0: that for them too. Well, when mine are complaining a lot, I make them stop and tell me what they're grateful for. Oh, yeah. I like that. It really helps. Like they That's stop good. being such brats. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I'm going to try it. And one of my kids will say, I'm grateful for nothing and storm off. I don't know which one though, but I like that idea a lot. (laughs) Tina, thank you so much. Um, So your book, The Power of Showing Up is officially coming out January, correct? Yeah,
2: January 7th, 7th, 2020. Yes. But if you pre order um, before then, uh, I mean, obviously you can pre order before then, but otherwise it'll be on. And out you the should pre order before then.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, I'm just really excited about it. I think it's an important book in our world at this time with, you know, school shootings and fears of yeah. climate, you know, all the stuff happening with our climate and our political world and the distraction and disconnection of our devices and the higher rates of anxiety, depression, and suicidality in our world. This book is not going to fix all those things, but it's kind. Kind of the antidote or the answer in terms of saying, show up. Let's, we got to show up for each other. You know, Let's do that. Let's yeah. focus on helping the world feel safe start, and soothed. And it's secure. a
0: good start. Yeah. It's starting from the inside out. It totally I mean, is. And that's what it is. It totally is. is.
1: And by um, the way, our school district, um, they don't call it a calm cave, but they've started doing that in each of the classrooms, at awesome. least in the elementary school. I'm so. a big fan. Same. Cool. As they, long as it's not used punitively. Um, no, I actually was more worried about some of the kids, my kid, we gave her a like a calming box and it didn't take her long to be like, you, I, you can't talk to me. I'm good. Like, it was like the face, the <laughs> but she's a clever little fucker, but, uh, <laughs> well, thank you so much, Tina. It was so great chatting with you.
2: Love talking with y'all too.
1: Thanks for
0: listening. If you liked this episode, please subscribe. Follow us on Instagram at neurotic nourishment to hear about upcoming guests and new episodes.